Kings of the North, they've done it! Canada is going to the World Cup! A 36-year-long wait finally ends as the Canadian men's team make the World Cup Finals. The story is nothing short of a fairy tale. As we dive into all the triumphs, trials, heroes and hallelujahs that built this Canadian dream on today's Road to Qatar. Never-ending winter has finally changed seasons as Canada and the men's national team have qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 36 years. In a period that's been marked by just a little bit of success in a sea of near misses and failures, Canadian men's soccer finally reaches the world stage once again. I'm joined here by Northern Football's Peter. Peter, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Hey, thank you for being here. Oh, Canada. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can only, uh, penny for your thoughts on March 27th when Canada beat Jamaica and reached uh, the World Cup stages. You know, just just give me a bit of that raw feeling. Um, we obviously know we saw uh, Alfonso Davies on the Twitch trip. As a Canadian, you know, what did this men's team reaching the World Cup mean to you? I think like everybody else, it was a mixture of emotions. Because even if you've only been following this team for a few years you are still very used to constant heartbreak with this team. Just when you think they're going to take one step forward, they would always take two steps back. And as someone who's covered this team for, I would say, in and around seven or eight years and has watched it in various capacities, whether it's as a fan or just you know, wanting to be informed in some way, for 17 or 18 years, to see it all transpire at home, in a sold-out stadium, in a latter-stage World Cup qualifier, to go to the first World Cup the country has been to in 36 years, was just very emotional in, in every way. Because I recall as well, standing um, on the pitch after the match, which is where we had to speak to the players and, and coaching staff after the game, and seeing the applause and the joy from every single supporter, many of whom actually stayed in the stadium afterwards to celebrate officially qualifying. It was just a breathtaking scene. It was very, very cold that day, but no one really cared just because of how, uh, well, how historic it was really at the end of the day. And you, you really have to say it, it could have a transformative effect on the sport in this country because qualifying for a world cup will bring in revenues that this federation has not ever seen before. To sort of put it into context, federation's annual budget is usually about $4 million every single year. And they get that money. That's nothing. It's, it's nothing at all. And they normally get that money from the government, um, as do a lot of the other Canadian sporting bodies as well. Typically speaking, they will take four million dollars and allocate it to the team or to the program that is going to have the quote-unquote busiest year ahead so if the women's team is going to the world cup they will allocate most of the funds towards the women's team and give a little bit to the men if they have say a gold cup or something like that um so going to the world cup it's going to guarantee as little as 11 million dollars could be 
upwards of $15 million in FIFA windfalls. That doesn't even count the sponsorship opportunities that are going to come with qualifying for the World Cup. and Huge sponsorship. Massive sponsorships. And they've already gotten a couple on board. I believe Gatorade actually just joined um, as a sponsor for the Canadian Soccer Association. So it's already starting to wow. happen. So just because of this, you're going to see example, more youth camps happening. Typically speaking, um, the under 20 and under 17 programs would only have camps in and around CONCACAF under 17 and under 20 championships because they just didn't have the funds to be able to have camps outside of those windows. And as a result, you'd lose a lot of dual nationals to other countries because even though they were interested in playing for Canada, their other nations were giving them opportunities because they had the funds and obviously the resources otherwise to have camps outside of these windows. So it's going to to change everything across the board. Just qualifying for this World Cup, coupled with the fact that they're going to be hosting in 2026 as well, which is going to bring in even more money. So it's, it's going to be the start and of what could be... World Cup as well. Yeah, exactly. So it could just be the start of what will be, I think, just a, a whirlwind four or five years here for Canadian soccer in general. That's bring a great point of the launch pad it creates. Um, so before, and let's 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 wind the clock back to '86. You know, Canada didn't have the the best World Cups. They, I believe, did not make it past the group stage. But what that '86 World Cup gave was an entry into Canadian soccer. You had more clubs being established. You had um, <clears throat> and entering the MLS. Um, you had. You had soccer, ostensibly, being a sport which Canadian youth could you know, look towards. Maybe it wasn't the dream. It wasn't the hockey. It wasn't the basketball. And obviously, we've seen you know tremendous steps there. We've seen the Toronto Raptors winning the NBA. So football has had to wedge itself in. And before the World Cup qualifiers, Canada were ranked 73rd in the world. They were 51 spots below uh, their nearest rivals, United States, and 64 points below, 50, and 64 spots below Mexico. Right now, they stand a FIFA rankings 38. And it's just a testament to how the team has come to where they are. So, so but just give me, you know, just a quick um, uh, uh, of the kind of battle that Canada had to do here because. I think what people also do need to realize is that Canada have qualified for the FIFA World Cup outright from their groups, from CONCACAF qualifying. They have not had to go the playoff route, which, you know, you'd usually expect for a team that's been outside FIFA qualifying for so long. But um, this this qualifying period, you know, just give me, you know, a, a, few, of, a few of the big moments where it almost seemed like this dream was going to become a reality for you. Well, as I sort of touched on off the top... Because of the history of this team, typically speaking, there was always a lot of skepticism every time it looked like the team was going to take a step forward. So John Herdman came in in January of 2018. And for the first year and a half, two years, he did have clearly an impact on, I think, the squad camaraderie, bringing in certain dual nationals. And generally speaking, I think reinvigorating the program. The problem was 
when it came time to play in those truly significant marquee games against the U.S., Mexico, even in knockout rounds in a gold cup, that is when they tended to slip up and regress to the mean. And it made you think, well, is John Herman the right man to take this team forward? Is is this team uh, of players in general, do they have the mental fortitude to be able to overcome adversity, adjust to certain situations in game, and take that step forward and compete with the U.S. and Mexico in the region? And when the pandemic happened, as it stood, Canada was actually going to have to go into what would have been a do-or-die qualifying tournament, in a way, against the other nations outside of your regular five or six teams, like Mexico, the U.S., Honduras, and the like. I don't know. Yeah. And, and Panama, exactly. Yeah, so that is what Canada would have had to do had the pandemic not happened. So, obviously, CONCACAF changed format. And Canada started in the first round of qualifying, of this new qualifying. They had to go through, um, God, it's so long ago now. Aruba, Comoros. Yeah, exactly. Um, Aruba was one. Yeah, Um, yeah, I mean, and they were crushing teams 11-0, 9-0, 8-0. I believe believe in like six games, it was one goal against and 27-4. I mean, you have to win and the people have to realize that this Canada team was still coming together. It wasn't like they were like, you know, hot shots from all around the world coming together, you know, um, crush crush other nations for their own nation. This it, they still had challenges. They were still forming the team. Herdman, you know, was still getting to grips with the formation, the players, where someone needed to play. And it, 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 the, the scoreline flatters the situation a bit. Yes. It actually shows just how powerful Canada had become. Yes, exactly. And I think when that first round happened, they were beating the Cayman Islands and Bermuda and, and Suriname. Um, Suriname, who did, to their credit, have a few decent players from the Netherlands, from the Eredivisie, but generally speaking, just would not be able to hold a candle to Canada on paper. And it proved to be the case because they did lose 4-0. Um, but once they got through that, they then had to face Haiti in the second round. And that was significant because in 2019, in the Gold Cup quarterfinals, Canada was leading 2-0 against Haiti. And it looked like they were going to coast to victory. And then they just had a monumental collapse in the second half and lost 3-2. And that was one of the, I think, defining moments of the team's transition to this point right now. Because it was that case of, all right, here we go again. Just when I think I can finally trust this team to, to really live up to their potential, they end up doing this. So when they face Haiti in a two-legged World Cup qualifying playoff, essentially, to get to this latter stages of World Cup qualifying, everyone was thinking, okay, have to travel to Haiti. It's going to be very hot. The pitch is dry. It's it's going to be challenging. Um, you know, you're you're playing what will be your third and fourth game in like an 11 day window. A lot of the players were at the end of a long, grueling European season. And this was at a time when the pandemic actually forced a quick turnaround in seasons, if, if everybody recalls. So it sort of just turned around very quick, very exactly. chaotic. Exactly. So it compounded everything, really. And when they got to face Haiti, they grinded out a professional 1 0 win. Was it pretty? No. 
but they got the goal they needed through the sheer individual quality they had, and they shut down Haiti. Tactically, they were very disciplined. They were diligent with defensive transitions, trying to get back in time. And, and you could see slowly that with these early round games, that they were starting to morph a little more tactically, because typically speaking, John Herdman would play a 4-3-3. Exactly. But like these, these fixed, he went from a three-four-three in the first leg, and then a, a three-five-two. Exactly. With uh, with Davies and Johnston hugging the wings, and uh, Lorraine and David sort of just playing off each other mm. um, up front. Exactly. Exactly. And everyone was sort of wondering, well, is he going to stick with that? Because he did it against Suriname, and everybody thought, well, was that just a one-time thing? Is it just because you you want to conserve players' energy? Who knows? But then they kept doing this, and then you would see them playing with essentially a 3-4-3 or a 3-5-2 at times in possession. They'd have a 4-4-2 off the ball, and it provided maximum security defensively. Um, They were well covered. The players were diligent to track back, which never always happened. And I think this has been really the big key to their turnaround. So they got past Haiti in the first leg. They can't play home qualifiers yet due to the pandemic, so they actually have to play the second leg, their quote-unquote home leg, in Chicago, where they end up getting past Haiti and get to the latter stages of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying for the first time in 23 years. So yet again, another historic milestone ticked off. And at this point, people were thinking if they can just keep themselves in the fight for that inter-confederation playoff by the March window, that will be successful for this team. Um, because they hadn't... And as we, as we know, we, they, they went beyond that. Yes, as we do know. And th- this is the thing. It caught everybody by surprise. I think even the teams they faced. Because, yes, they did start with that 1-1 draw against Honduras. And it made you think, well, are they really ready for this mentally? But it was a resounding yes. Because from that point on, uh, they just coasted their way through. And every single challenge they met, even when they would trail or they would you know, maybe be on the wrong side of a poor refereeing decision. Yeah. Like they just overcame it. And it was crazy because again, you don't associate mental fortitude with Canada. So to see them doing this against Mexico at the Azteca and probably deserving to win in what was a one, one draw in the end, but probably deserved to win that game. It just shocked everybody. And I think that was the moment when everybody thought this team is for real. And they proved us right because from that game in October all the way to till the March, they went on a heater and ended up topping CONCACAF qualifying. And there's that there's that moment um, where I think I think it was in Vancouver. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Snow is falling. Snow is on the side of, side of the pitch. You know, uh, Canada fight. They. It, it looks like it's going to head to another 1-1 one, one draw. And then Larian scores again. And full time. And I remember the, the commentator said, um, forget the Azteca. It's time to celebrate on the Azteca. Yes. Where all of the Canadian fans just on the, the snow. And it's that moment where you think that we've beaten Mexico. And we drew with Mexico before them. These are the big dogs. Are we the big dogs now? Yeah. And you know what? I couldn't argue with them. Because as far as Mexico's pedigree goes in reaching World Cup competitions and getting out of the group stages, this is a different World Cup altogether. It's going to require different talents. It's going to require different strategies. And 
I think where Canada have positioned themselves well here now is that the manager has played five four ones against big teams. He's played three five twos. He's played mm. four four twos, and he's played three four threes. But in none of these stages did it look like you know players were beaching themselves or you know they were really out of the woods. I think they trust the manager enough, and this comes back to your you know point about head. Um, if it, and this is just also for the general viewership, like heads had coaching positions with the women's team before. He yes. knows what Canadian soccer means. He understands Canadian soccer. You, know, you could you could say that someone with more pedigreed experience for World Cups. You know, you see the likes of Carlos Kirish for Iran and you know other managers from bigger nations helping out so-called smaller nations uh, with their uh, World Cup pedigree. But head has just come in, you know, full tilt knows what this Canadian identity means and coalesce them into a group that, you know, has a shot. You don't want to just say, oh, we've reached the FIFA World Cup. Great achievement. It's like, no, they want to go beyond this. And yes. this sort of makes me want to come to, you know, a point you've touched on a little bit before. Sometimes this can get, um, you know, a bit of a contentious point. Talk about dual nationalities. And mm-hmm. for a lot of people... When they hear Canadian football, they think of one name. They think of Bayern Munich's left back, Alfonso Davies. Right. Uh, so just as a, as a, as a quick summary, um, Davies' family came as refugees to Canada from Liberia, you know, sort of being a brutal civil war. Uh, Davies, obviously, you know, as, as a child had to adjust to new surroundings, took up to soccer, you know, um, played through, played through. I um, I believe he was with the Whitecaps. Yep. Which was right. a team. Yeah. He's with Whitecaps. His talents were recognized. And at a very young age, he was picked up by Bayern München, biggest team in Germany, possibly one of the biggest in Europe. And it gave everybody, you know, it, 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 it got everyone's attention. that Canadian and Bayern Munich, and he's a young player. Okay. This is a Julian Green part two. They'll loan him out. He'll get lost in the woods. Right. And, you know, maybe he'll be a uh, where are they now story a couple of years ago, right? Wasn't the case. <laughs> Davies came in, forced his, forced his space and benched the 70 million euro record signing. Lucas Hernandez made his part in the team and came in through. Um, give me, give, give me a sense, Peter, about what the system of dual nationalities means and how has you know Herdman been able to convince these players? Because you had mentioned before that players who could represent other nations apart from Canada were choosing the other nations. So, what is it about you know getting? How important is it in getting these players to represent the Canadian nation? There is no doubt it is one of the most important aspects, if not the most important aspect of the program, because if you look all across the team. Every single player is some, in, in some way, their heritage can be tied back, even just, you know, as, as recently as they moved to Canada when they were a kid, or they may not even have lived in Canada for very long. But in the case of Ike Ugbo, for example, he only lived in Canada for three or four years from, I believe, the ages of five until about nine or 10. And then he ended up moving uh, back to England because he ended up getting into the Chelsea Academy and then the rest, as we see, panned out the way it has. But John Herdman, I think, has done a few things that no other coach has done before in trying to convince these dual nationals to represent Canada. Number one, it's due diligence. 
in that he has maintained constant contact, made these players feel wanted. He has essentially uh, pitched this Canadian program to the players being like, you can do something special. You can be part of history. And this is the John Herdman specialty, really, because he is a master motivator. And that was the reputation he had with the women's team. That was the reputation he had probably up until a few months ago, to be honest, um, with the men's team. But I, I think as much as he has developed tactically as a coach, in terms of the motivation and the man management, he is second to none. And I think you see that with some of the dual nationals he's brought in, Stefan Estacchio uh, being another one. Um, and there are many other young dual nationals out there. For example, Stefan Mitrovic, uh, who plays for Radnički Niš in the Serbian Superliga. He scored 10 goals this season. He's on an absolute flyer, probably going to get a move to Belgium or the Netherlands very soon, only 19 years old. But even though he was born in the former Yugoslavia, he is, uh, well, did live in Canada for the majority of his life. Um, but has Serbian parents. So he can represent both countries, but he is kind of leaning towards Canada thanks to these recent developments, as are many other players as well. Um, And this is, I think, the key, because if you can even get, say, one out of every three or four Canadian-eligible players, I think you were going to significantly deepen the player pool, and that could have lasting ramifications for the country because listen the the more players you can get that are of high quality then the the more exposure that gives the team the more big games they're playing in and then the more kids at home will see this team and say oh i want to play football or play soccer for and i think yeah living, that you know? last part is, is is pivotal it is because you have to have one thing that leads to another you know it's really easy to say no canadian football will only will only prosper once we have, you know, millions and millions of dollars on grassroots campaigns. It's like, no, there is a much faster way to do it. Make these people who could represent Canada want to represent Canada and not have it and not dangle the opportunity of, ooh, national team football, you want to play it, come play for Canada, which a lot of other nations end up doing. But I, you know, I completely agree with you, making them feel wanted is is a great thing. And and for the case of like a lot of other players, um, they're coming in from big leagues, some of these players. You know, they mm. come in with the experience of knowing how to handle the pressure. Yes. And as we've seen in this in these qualifiers where they had 14 games, 10 wins, and only four draws, that 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 ability has counted for something. And especially pivotal in January when you know you had the news that Alfonso Davies had a heart problem and it was shelved indefinitely. We didn't know whether he was going to come back to play right. football. Off in the mouth, but you know what? They, they they didn't. Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say they didn't need him, but they could do it without him because by that point he had instilled, you know, through his own personal ability as a left winger, not just a left back. That you know, as a stronger unit, like this is how we need to respond to pressure. This is how we need to, you know, overcome adversity, and they managed to do it without him. And yeah. you know, obviously they will have him back in the. World Cup group stages, but that that just shows the caliber of of Canada, where a player that big, you know, can be out of contention. Yet the whole team still sort of hands together. Yeah. Um, you know, your neighbors in the south have that problem a little bit yes. when they don't have the 
likes of, um, you know, either Tyler Adams or Christian Pulisic not playing, <clears throat> the team feels like it's beached. You don't have, you know, those characters and players who've come through. And, you know, that, 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 that sort of brings me perfectly to um, a, a, a little bit about where they're strongest and where, you know, there could be possible, possible holes in the side. And I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll get, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, the players who've done really well, but give me a sense of where you might feel a little bit of fear and trepidation for this team heading into the World Cup. Which parts of the Canadian lineup, you know, might raise a bit more, a few more questions for you. This is a common theme for any Canadian fan. and. I'm taking nothing away from them because they have performed very well up to this point, but I think the World Cup is going to be a whole different kind of test for understandable reasons. It's center back. Um, You look at the fullback depth, even if you just take Alfonso Davies out of it, if he doesn't play as a wingback or fullback, you still have Sam Atakubi, who's having a monumental season with Hatchespor in Turkey. You have Richie Larea, who, even though he hasn't gotten a lot of minutes at Nottingham Forest, has been one of Canada's key players on that right wing. And next season. That's right. Exactly. And, you know, even if he can't play on the right, he can play on the left. Um, you have Alistair Johnston, who, yes, even though he can kind of play as a center back or, you know, wing back, he did come through college as a, as a wing back or fullback. So um, you have that depth there. Yes, he does play center back a lot more for the national team. Um, the, the midfield's loaded. We all know the forward options and winger options that they have in Kyle Lahren, Jonathan David, even a young player like Theo Corbinu, who's contracted at Wolves, um, went on loan in, in League One, had, you know, pretty decent time, had some struggles as well, but he is a young player after all. Um, it, it's center back though, just in terms of the depth and quality, I would say, because they do have options. Kamal Miller's performed very well. Stephen Vittoria, despite his advanced age and chronic knee issues, has held up very well in qualifying. And he's still a captain when he plays, so that's yeah. an important thing to have in the team. Very, very important. Very important. And he has been quite monumental. And I think playing in a back three really, really suits him because he's not the quickest, but because he has that protection around him and the team's defensive structure is so disciplined, um, he can thrive in that environment. And then Alistair Johnson, as I mentioned, probably has been Canada's unsung hero during this run to the World Cup. Um, Fairly young at 23. Um, yeah. I believe he plays CF Montreal as yes. well. So he has, he has he has a bit more chemistry with a lot of the players you know, who ply their trade in the MLS. And exactly. Obviously, you're, you're coming back to the, you're going to come to the obvious point of Derek Cornelius and Daniel Henry yes. being the go-to options. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's, it's the roll of the dice. Do you go for the most experienced heads, or do you go for you know a a more a more tactically flexible but you know less dependable set of centre backs? I think this will give uh, Herman the headache that you know he he'll need to sort out quickly. He will, he will, and I think to his credit, and I think this has been a constant theme of his in the last few games. He has been very tactically flexible. Going from a four four two to a three four three to a you know everything under the sun really, and he's played with different center back combinations. You had Scott Kennedy and Daniel Henry starting together in I believe what was actually a four four two against Jamaica. Um, and, That's four four two, yeah, exactly. And you know 
they've played with three, five, two with a Miller, Vittoria, Johnston back three. Um, they've constantly rotated it. So I feel like no matter how he lines it up, it'll be fine. But I think just in terms of the overall quality of the center backs going up against the Belgians and the Croatias, that is going to be the ultimate test of their abilities. And look, they've risen to every challenge at this point. This could be a bridge too far. But if they end up doing even just decently well against those two teams, you're going to see moves abroad probably start to formulate for the likes of Alistair Johnston, Kamal Miller, and possibly a couple of others as well, depending on who makes the final squad. Exactly. And that, that, that you mentioned the two teams, and <clears throat> this brings us to the group. Canada will be in the group with Morocco, Belgium, and Croatia. And, you know, even for those uninitiated, Morocco are no pushovers. They're one of the best teams in, in Africa. You know, their most recent AFCON performances won't really sing praises to that regard, but they are a team who've been there. They know what it's like. They've played. They have players all over Europe. So Canada are coming in as the underdogs, but that is the World Cup. You know, people tune in for these fairy tale stories, and, and one, one inevitably comes up every time. You know, my, my mind is costed back maybe like eight years when you had Costa Rica, L3, you know, setting the world alight, like putting Uruguay and England to the sword and going all the way to, you know, the the quarter, I believe. It's it's not impossible. You know, uh, you and I, we've been involved tactically in this sport. You have obviously, you know, been part of every minute of this team for the last seven years. You know, we, 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 we think tactically about this, but, you know, the World Cup loves their figures. And, you know, this could be a, the time for maybe someone like Alfonso Davies, maybe someone like Jonathan David, you know, how the World Cup loves, you know, a, a creative attacker. This could be a time to sort of take the weight of the country and take it to the spot because the ultimate sports people require the ultimate platform. It doesn't get any bigger than the World Cup. It's the world's most watched sporting event or event, televised event rather. And, you know, we, we will ourselves to believe in the intangibles, but, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's going to be a great couple of matches. Like, what, which are the ones you're most excited about? You know, are you excited about playing this, you know, end, end of, end of, end of the rainbow, uh, golden generation Belgium team? Or, you know, or are you looking forward to facing the World Cup runners up in Croatia or maybe even Morocco? Which one of these, um, you know, which one of these matchups excites you the most? Like, this is going to be great exposure for Canada. I have been debating this myself for probably the last few weeks since the draw happened, because I think every single one of these presents certain challenges. Um, in Belgium, it's pretty much just three words, and that's Kevin De Bruyne. Um, him, exactly. alone, him alone is is going to be a magnificent uh, game to watch just with him involved against this Canadian team with Croatia. Yes, you have a more aging midfield, but Luka Modric, the more he ages, the, the better he gets, it seems. And you would not put it past him to make the final squad and have a massive say in Croatia's tournament. Um, that midfield battle could be really, really fascinating because Canada does have a decent midfield not to the level of Croatia, that could be a real interesting challenge to see how they match up together um, and, and just how both coaches approach it as well because they could go Canada with a pivot. They could go with a trio. They could, um, you know, 
they can throw different options at you because they do have flexible options there. So it'll be real fascinating to see that. And then Morocco, interestingly and funnily enough, I feel play similarly to Canada in that their strengths are on the wings, right? Because Canada has Alfonso Davies, Morocco has Atraf Hakimi. They might bring back Nusayir Masrawi, depending on what happens with the coaching situation there. And maybe if he's convinced to come back, he can be an option in the midfield, which could bolster probably Morocco's weakest area, if you want to call it that. Um, like, it, it's just so fascinating to me, all three games. I'd probably pick Croatia of the three, just because you do have a world-class midfield there. I'm a massive Marcelo Brozovic fan. I would love to see how him and Stefan Ostakio duel against each other. It would be real fun to watch. I think, I think, I think, I think Brozovic has been one of the unsung stories. I feel that if Inter, I mean, obviously we are talking about this on Saturday, May 21st. Uh, things might have changed when you hear this, but, uh, Brozovic could be, uh, the Serie A player of the season. If, if, uh, Italy take, if Inter takes the Scudetti tomorrow on the 22nd Sunday, Exactly, exactly. So I would say Croatia would be the one just because they are the finalists. Um, they have a terrific midfield. Canada has a pretty decent midfield, clearly not to the level of Croatia's. Um, and games are won <laughs> and lost in the midfield. So I, I think that would be the one I would All choose. I mean, that's similar to me as well. Um, and, you know, on that note, uh, I feel that we've, we've, powered, we've powered the listeners enough with uh, you know, a hope for Canada. I hope this has reached all our neutrals. Um, you know, like uh, Carlo Ancelotti, I, I will be. I will be wearing the Canadian <laughs> flag and supporting Canada this World Cup. I want them to go far. I love an underdog story, and the beauty of me being Indian is I can support whoever I want, and no one can say anything. <laughs> and uh, so, on that note, thank you so much, Peter. Um, uh, keep uh, on contact with us um, at uh, Breaking the Lines. We're going to be having a lot more podcasts coming for you bi-weekly. Biggest stories of the World Cup, the biggest teams, the biggest changes, the biggest controversies, all that and more on Road to Qatar. See you next time.